Hi, I'm Jerry House. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories, but you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart, and this podcast is not suitable for children, but then neither is the music business. So, light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. I think today we're going to tell stories relating to, you know, some of the uh, country music institutions, like, you know, the Country Music Association, the CMA Awards, the ACM Awards... The Opry Fanfare, which has now evolved into CMA Music Fest. And what about the CMT Awards? Okay, I'm not sure when those started, but one day I turned on the television and there they were. The CMT Awards, which they had never had heretofore. And suddenly everybody was hustling to be on, oh, they're having the 300 best kisses in country music. Oh, the best hats in country music. So that became a pretty big show. Well, one of the um, more interesting times in my life was when I was um, elected to the CMA Board of Directors. At that time, there had been four, you know, there were four women on the board, which was uh, Connie Bradley, uh, Donna Hilly, uh, Janice Wendell, and Kitty Moon. And I got um, elected on, and I was really kind of proud and happy, having no idea of how big the board was. But the problem became the night before um, there was some sort of uh, award show or some kind of TV show uh, taping out at the Opry House. And uh, I had a lot of clients on the show, and one of them was Ricky Van Shelton, who was a very, you know, hot artist at the time, very big, won lots of awards, had lots of hit records. Great Virginia voice, really a totally unique voice in country music. And at that time, the, uh, the shows always liked to have a group sing at the end with all the artists singing, you know, something. And Ricky didn't want to do the group sing. He felt it was, you know, that the artists always looked stupid, that they didn't know the words, that it was in the wrong key, the camera. It was true. And, and also, artists didn't want to have to hang until the end of the night. If they performed two hours earlier, they, didn't, they wanted to leave. So the um, producer of the show at the time, who was a big CMA board member, uh, got mad and said to Ricky, you either sing the song or we're throwing you off the show. And so uh, Ricky got thrown off the show. But it was out at the Opry House, and Ricky, you know, is, was an Opry member and is an Opry member, and his bus was parked there. And it was about, you know, five minutes before showtime. And all of a sudden, these guards come out to the bus and they tell Ricky that he has to leave and he has to move his bus uh, because they need the parking. Well, of course, nobody was coming with another bus at that time. So, but nonetheless, Ricky left. And I ended up doing some interviews with the paper and told um, the... uh, well, the next day, the, the cover of the Tennessean said, uh, the headline was, the CMA treats artists like shit. And, you know, the quote was attributed to me. So that morning, I have to walk into the board meeting, my first board meeting. And I thought that there were maybe like 20 people on the board. I had no idea. 
because I hadn't really paid attention. Well, it's a huge board. There were like 40 or 50 people there. And everybody just turned and stared at me. And I was like, oh, God, I can't believe this. And um, Donna Hilly, who was the head of Tree uh, Publishing, Sony Tree, she said, oh, Evelyn, come and sit with me, which was really nice because I didn't know her that well. And, you know, I was so happy to have found somebody who was going to be welcoming. And then she said, this is the first time we've ever been mentioned in the front page of the newspaper. <laughs> so it was like a very awkward thing. And then it even got worse because the uh, guy who threw Ricky Van off the uh, property uh, immediately stood up to explain what had happened to the rest of the board to explain the uh, story in the paper. And he referred to me as the little lady that his language wasn't going to be as colorful as the little lady and just kind of um, tried to dismiss me as, as, you know, a fan or some, you know, young, ignorant woman. And I, you know, then got up and when he finished and tried to explain myself and my voice was shaking and I was really nervous. And, you know, I said, you know, you might have had the right to throw him off the show, but you certainly didn't have the right to throw an opry member off the property. And, you know, uh, I looked around the room and uh, a lot of people that made a lot of money off of Ricky Van Shelton were just sitting there. And not one person, you know, stepped up and defended, you know, an artist that they were making millions and millions off of. The fact of the matter is that back then, hardly any of the business people stood up for the artists. You know, and the artists treated the label like they were their parents. They were very uh, childlike when it came to the... Uh, they were. They were so deferential. I mean... Unbelievably deferential. And, you know, like the, like, you know, like the producers and the head of marketing and stuff were like, you know, the king and queen of Siam. And they were just like, you know, little water boys running around. And they all felt that way. And I think in a way they still do. But, you know, the CMA, you know, the CMAs, and the CMA board, it's a very interesting uh, collaboration, really, in, in country music that's very unique unto its, its own. And, you know, and it's a weird, you know, organization. You know, Mac Weissman, you know, uh, just died, and he was on the CMA board when I was on the board, and I really didn't know who he was, but he was just an extraordinary person. And then I later found out what a uh, huge uh, star he had been in his day, but he was, you know, an older guy to begin with, and it was more of like that kind of, you know, country mountain music that I wasn't that familiar with. But I really liked him, and he was very charming and nice, and we were both on uh, the retirement home committee. For as long as I've been in Nashville, they've been talking about building a retirement home for uh, country music, and not for the stars, because the stars, by and large, usually are well taken care of, you know, through their death. But for all the musicians that go out, you know, the side guys and the bands and the, you know, people that work in the business that, uh, you know, are ultimately eventually going to become old and have to go somewhere. And the idea for the retirement home was to be, you know, a place out in the country where everybody could come and, uh, you know, they would have like a stage and they would have, you know, instruments and they would have, you know, animals and things that these country guys were used to. Uh, and we used to joke that we would both be dead before they ever built this retirement home. And sure enough, 
you know, Mac Weissman died just, you know, a few weeks ago. And I haven't heard a word about the retirement community for country Never. music. So, I mean, maybe they're still working on it, but it's a long process. Well, you know, one of the things, you know, from my point of view on the CMA Awards, particularly when I first came to town and, and for so long, country always kind of viewed itself as like a second-class citizen, like a, you know, a bastard stepchild that they couldn't, you know, hope to be, you know, too um, big or anything. And I remember that they always tried to fill the CMA Awards, and they still do with people that had nothing to do with the format, you know, that their name value is all of a sudden going to bring in a different audience. And I remember uh, on one show, Toby Keith and Sting were going to do a duet. And Toby was very hot. Toby was my client. And honest to God, I don't think that he got three seconds of, of uh, camera time during his whole song. And it was his song. or I don't even remember what the song was, but I think it was... Uh, a Toby song that was, you know, the one concession to country on this show was at least they would do his song, but they would keep the camera on Sting at all times. It's like the people here were not respectful of their own genre. And I remember years ago when I first got here, like in the 70s, they said Nashville is the worst place to play for anybody that is in country music because nobody goes to any of the shows locally in town. And, you know, they did, they they would have people on from like, you know, days of our lives. And they would be, you know, on the CMA show and nobody would know who they were. But they would replace somebody like, let's say, uh, Patty Loveless, you know, and they wouldn't let her be on. I remember one year, the big, the big buzz one year with the CMA show was uh, George had a song out called uh, Choices. And it was a big song for him, and we were making the comeback and banned it with the song. And it was right after George had had this horrendous car accident and had almost died, and, you know, nobody knew if he was going to make it, and it was very touch and go. And we had just finished an album with him, which was ultimately called The Cold Hard Truth. And it was a fantastic album, and the song was called Choices, which he actually won a Grammy for, for the single. And it was a big comeback album. A big comeback album. So they were planning the show, and they wouldn't let George sing the song. They wouldn't let George sing the whole song. They wanted him to well, cut they, it. Well, at first they didn't want him to sing anything. Then they wanted him to cut it where, you know, nobody would know it, so George would have to come out like an old fool and sing nothing. It was just very disrespectful, and, you know... Well, and George refused to come out... to perform on the show if he couldn't perform the whole song as opposed to like, you know, 45 seconds or something. But one person came out and stood up for George and it was Alan Jackson. And he was, I think he was winning. Well, Alan was, was huge at the, at the time and his performance, I forget what song it was he was performing. He came out instead of, you know, he, he started his song, but then he segued right into Choices and sang that. Instead, and, and it was a really big moment for George and the audience. Everyone broke out clapping because, you know, slowly over the years, they've taken the older artists and they've so trivialized them and marginalized them that they'll do a segment of three minutes where, you know, this person died, that person, that nobody, you know, they give them no, they give them such short shrift. And, you know, in other formats, whereas they might, you know, really look up to like a, a Billy Joel or, you know, or a Frank Sinatra or somebody like that. In country music, they, they still don't do it on the uh, award shows. 
Uh, but still and all, if you look at the shows, you won't see anybody older than like 30 on the shows. So the same week as the CMA Awards, there are other uh, industry uh, dinners, the BMI dinner, the ASCAP dinner, the CSAC dinner. And um, they're, you know, a, a much more prestigious kind of uh, ticket because everything is very limited and they celebrate the writers of that year, you know, which ever affiliation the writer has, but they have a whole like uh, a show during the dinner and they pay tribute to, you know, a great songwriter. And in a lot of ways, you know, it's one of the best shows because, you know, all the stars that had the hits off of the songs that, that these guys wrote, you know, get up and perform it. And it's, you know, very intimate and... Um, and there was really, a big competition. Really between, fun to go to. Big competition between ASCAP and BMI when the dinners came. Who would get what night? Where they would have them? Who would have the best artist there? But it was, you know, it was evident. Like if if uh, you wanted Kenny Chesney, well, he was ASCAP and he was with Connie Bradley, who was the head of ASCAP. And, you know, other people were BMI and they would, you know, play at the BMI things. So they were really cool. Back in the 70s, those dinners were unbelievable. The food, you know, that's the first time I ever saw Tammy was at a BMI dinner in like 1976. And she was there with her husband, George Ritchie. And he is the first person I ever saw in my life who had on a short sleeve tuxedo. Well, as I remember the story, um, Willie was in town doing stuff. I, you know, I guess he was recording. And the BMI, did, or maybe he was going to be on the, well, he was, he was going to be awards. on the award show. And um, we sort of talked him into, like, you know, the BMI dinners tonight, you know, kind of surprising everybody. And he liked that idea. And so we decided to go to the, uh, the BMI dinner. We were with Annie and Willie, me and Ev. And Ev was driving. And... Uh, there was a long line for, you know, the ballet parking and the fact, you know, nobody knew that Willie was coming to the award we, show. We didn't tell anybody. So Willie was in the back seat with Annie and we were all smoking and we got out of the car. We didn't even know where well, we, we were. Well, we decided to park like over at one of the uh, like labels as opposed to waiting for the ballet parking. So we're running through the bushes. Oh, it's <laughs> running through the bushes, everything getting snagged. Willie was in an Armani tux that his manager, Mark, had bought for him. And uh, Willie looked really elegant, and we all looked elegant until we were all schlepping through the bushes outside tree. So when we walked in, Francis Preston was there at the front door. Everyone was shocked to see Willie because no one knew that he was coming. Well, because the ACMs came out after the CMAs, and they used to be at Blackberry Farm in Los Angeles. Knottsbury. Knottsbury Farm in uh, Los Angeles. They were run by this man called Bill Boyd and his wife. And, you know, upon meeting Bill Boyd, he was so, they were so weird and just kind of backward, but they were huge country music fans, and their whole thing was to try to compete with the CMAs. That was the whole thing. Bill Boyd wanted to turn it into the Grammys, but he was, you know, really, he was mean to me. And, uh, but he did do one funny thing. You know, there's no Jews in country music and there's no Jews at the ACM, but he had these hats made up for me and Mark Rothbaum and Joel Katz. They were baseball caps and it said JCM, Jews in country music. 
and he had these caps made up and we were just hysterical. Nobody hardly knew what it meant, but we did. And uh, I was so sorry when Bill died because after all these years, we had all become friendly with him. And Well, the ACM Awards were sort of created just, you know, as a, a showcase situation and there was, you know, no grand ambitions to, you know, be the, uh, you know the tastemaker of country music or anything was, you know, basically to try to get some of the newer acts on TV. And when it was done out at Knott's Berry Farm, it was, you know, just a total different kind of thing as to what it is today. And in fact, the first uh, ACM awards that I dealt with was when I first started handling Randy. And Randy, you know, was just exploding and was as big as you could be. And uh, I was making arrangements for him to, you know, perform on the show. And you know, we all knew he was going to win a lot of awards because it was just inevitable. But they wanted Randy to pay his own plane fare and everything, which I had never heard of. I mean, I had done a lot of, you know, TV shows and award shows in my lifetime before country music. And I said, what do you mean he's supposed to pay his own way out there and all of that? And they said, well, that's the way, you know, it's done here. And I said, why? Is it, do you not sell commercials on this, you know, show? You know, it was on like a, you know, it was on a major network, whichever network it was. Uh, and we had this huge argument, you know, about, uh, I said, I, I can't expect my client to pay to come out and to, you know, provide all the viewers and, you know, the, for your advertisers and, he said, oh, we'll, we'll provide transportation. And his idea of transportation was the golf cart that took you from the hotel to the theater, Bill Boyd. And, you know, we ended up, like, really hating each other for a couple of years. But then we ended up becoming good friends, like Susan said. Uh, because once I, when I started handling Willie Nelson, Bill Boyd just worshipped him. They all worship Willie. And all of a sudden, er you know, everything was okay. And, you know, he... He would, like, leave, you know, our backstage passes, you know, at our hotel as opposed to making a schlep over there to get them. Well, Reba's a great host, I must say. I think Reba's a fantastic host, and she's really funny. But I think that Reba, you know, it's more fun. It is. It's in Las Vegas, and, you know. And I think now that it's in Vegas, it's a total different thing, and they always manage to, you know, tape another show while they're out there. A or tribute do something. show. Um, so I think that, you know, you go out there with the intention of having four or five days of parties because by the time you do the rehearsals and everything, um, it's a whole different world than it was when it was at Knott's Berry Farm and then it moved to, uh, Universal and that too was, you know, a different kind of thing. A nightmare because I would always get lost there. Have you ever been to the Universal Amphitheater? It's up on the hills, and truthfully, we did get lost there a lot, and we ended up at a trash bin one night leaving the award show, and there were giant raccoons. Everywhere you looked, there were these massive raccoons, and, you know, they were all around the car. We were just hysterical. Hysterical. I was driving the car, and I was, which was amazing as it was, and I was just petrified. We couldn't get out of there, and so finally... I didn't know where we were. The raccoons were all everywhere around us. And I turned the car around and went down the hill and found one of those little, you know, open studio things that's going on at Universal. Oh, like a bungalow. And uh, said to the guys in there, look, I'll pay you $100 if you'll take us back to the sportsman's lodge. <laughs> so the guy said, yeah, and we give them $100. And, then, and we still got lost and we had to go back again. It's so confusing out there. Fanfare was a blast. One of the fun things that we got to do was a, uh, 
We had done a uh, Beach Boys project, you know, with country stars, you know, doing Beach Boys songs and the Beach Boys participating. And uh, the record company wanted to try to get a show, you know, to be able to do the album on Fanfare. And uh, there was no room during the regularly scheduled Fanfare because, you know, all the major labels had their shows. So we asked if we could do a show on Saturday morning. And there had never been a show done on a Saturday before. And they said, well, you can do it, but, you know, the fans are going to leave on Friday night. So, you know, you're going to have an empty house. And we were so nervous. It was just um, unbelievable when we got there the next morning. We filled the stands, 25,000 people. It was one of the great shows of fanfare. It was a blast. All these uh, artists came out to sing with the uh, Beach Boys. And, you know, there's, it, it, there's not a country fan alive that doesn't know the Beach Boys songs as well. So the audience had a great time. Well, I remember fanfare because, once again, I brought my friend Julia Reed there with this famous fashion photographer named Arthur Elcourt. And, you know, you never know how the weather's going to be at Fanfare, whether it's going to be a 1,000 degrees or whether it's just going to rain all the time. And this time that she brought Arthur down, it rained the whole time. And I remember seeing her and this, you know, and they're all dressed up. She's in her, like, Gucci loafers, and he's in his elegant, you know, very uh, cosmopolitan outfit, and they're schlepping around and thick mud trying to get to the to the picnic tables where the food was and the food was never more than you know like hot dogs or hamburgers or maybe some barbecue or something but everybody had a great time all the fabulous foreign press was there and you know you would look forward to seeing these people and everybody had a relaxed time and it wasn't like there was huge pressure who was the guy on CNN, the old guy? Larry King. Larry King was always there. And uh, random people would be there. And, uh, you know, people loved country music. But the first year I went to Fanfare, I just couldn't even believe it. I was coming down from New York. I had worked with people like Diana Ross and Elton John and, um, you know, different kinds of TV and movie and Broadway stars. And I'd never heard of such a thing because... In New York, you know, it's not that touchy-feely kind of fan and star scenario by any stretch of the imagination. And um, I got to Nashville, went to my first fanfare, and it was with Randy Travis. And he was exploding, and the fans were just crazy. And I just, I'd never seen anything where, you know, there was so much access to a star. And, you know, you didn't think about things like, you know, shootings, that didn't even enter your mind. Um, so people were really warm and friendly. They, you know, the fans brought gifts. They brought cakes they baked and cookies and all kinds of food. And people ate it. You didn't think anything of it. Um, so I was really kind of shocked, but I loved it. I thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You know, why don't they do that in every form of music or, uh, you know, TV stars when you're trying to get a hit show or something? Because... You could see how much it meant to the fans and, you know, for the performers, you know, it had to be gratifying, too, to have that kind of uh, feedback. Well, I'll tell you truthfully, it was the weirdest thing I had ever been to where all the fans were there. and But they loved the artists so much. And I loved the fact that there were all the farm animals there. And you could go into the barns and there were, uh, you know, crafts and stuff that the people had made. And... Uh, 
I love the fact that the artist stayed there so long and so interacted with the, uh, you know, it wasn't like Bob Dylan <laughs> or any of the people that I was used to seeing. Uh, and it was great from an industry point of view, the whole backstage area, all the labels being mixed up together. Everybody, you know, got to know each other and uh, were friendly and supportive of, you know, the different acts that were on. And their big, big um, heads of their labels from New York would come down and they would always say that they were going to stay for the whole show. And you would see that they were there for like 10 minutes and then they were gone. And, you know, it was a very... Uh, rural kind of activity. It wasn't sophisticated. The people from New York would fly in, you know, literally for, you know, 45 minutes or something. They'd have a staff meeting for 30 minutes. They'd go out to the fairgrounds. They'd, you know, shake hands in the tent, meet all the artists, say they were staying for the show, and then they were gone the second the music started. But, you know, how I it understand goes. that now because we go to shows and I don't want to stay for the whole show and neither do you. Now to address all the Music City myths and legends that surround country music. One of our listeners has submitted, I heard George Jones was paranoid that Porter Wagner was sleeping with Tammy when they were married and they fought one night backstage at the Opry. Truthfully, I never heard that particular uh, myth, but I don't doubt that it's true. George was very jealous where Tammy was concerned and Tammy was a bit of a flirt. I don't think she was probably sleeping with Porter, but, you know, maybe she flirted with him a bit. And George would have been really mad and they would have fought over that. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. Tune in next week for our episode, The Girls, where we will be talking about the many amazing women we've had the opportunity to work with. The first lady of country music, Tammy Wynette. Trio 2 with Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Ronstadt. The Honky Tonk Angels with Tammy Wynette, Dolly Parton, and Loretta Lynn. Not to mention Lori Morgan, Shelby Lynn, KT Oslin, and many more. We want to hear from you. Music City is an absolute rumor mill. There are so many tall tales Nashville is built on. Some are true, some are false, but we sure get a laugh out of all of them. If you've heard a rumor about a country music icon... Nashville or the music industry submitted on our website at www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com for the chance to have it addressed on our Music City Miss segment in our next episode. So share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a, uh, you know, word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Sarah DeHilly. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Shavers. He is also our engineer and editor.